This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. If uh, you can return to your seats, please. And uh, as you do, open up to Colossians 3. We start a new series today, and it is called... uh, It is called Everyday Gospel, Closing the Gap Between Sunday Faith and Daily Life. We're going to do this for about eight weeks where we're going to look at a a number of different aspects of our lives together and how the gospel impacts those. And today we're going to talk about the gospel and ordinary life. And I'm just super relaxed today to speak to you because my calling is to preach an ordinary sermon. Uh, If I preach an extraordinary sermon, I will totally undermine the entire thesis of this message, which is that God is glorified in the ordinary aspects of our lives, that God is present in the mundane. So if you're a guest, today will be a mundane, ordinary, uh, forgettable sermon, because that's the way most of our lives are. And uh, then you can come back next week, and there'll be something extraordinary happening, I am sure. So uh, as we enter this, I want to let you know that we have some books at our resource center, which is across from the coffee area out there. Uh, We have had every series, we put up some books. Uh, We've had a number of books from past series. We're getting rid of all those, so there's like a fire sale going on out there or something. You can get previous series books cheap today. Uh, But we have several books for you that I want to let you know about that'll be available during this series. Here's the first one. It is uh, Ordinary, uh, Sustainable Faith in a Radical, Restless World by Michael Horton. Uh, It's a thoughtful critique of radical Christianity, restless Christianity, which says that only spiritual highs matter, only uh, incredible moments of radical service uh, register for the Lord. And he goes through and builds a solid case for how really God is glorified and uh, in the regular aspects of our life. Here's another book, Um, Every Square Inch, an Introduction to Cultural Engagement for Christians. This is by Bruce Ashford. Uh, The title is uh, taken from an oft-quoted statement by Abraham Kuyper, uh, who said, uh, he was a Dutch statesman and theologian, who said, uh, paraphrasing here, uh, that there is not a single square inch in the universe over which Jesus does not declare mine. And so the the idea is that Christ rules over all the the world and all of creation and all of our lives, and thus everything matters. That's what we're talking about today. So this is a great book I'd recommend as well, written by, uh, he teaches a seminary at Southeastern Seminary. Uh, And the last one is Glory in the Ordinary, Why Your Work in the Home Matters to God uh, by Courtney Reisig, I think it is. I I actually know how to pronounce her last name. I've never heard it said, but uh, I read this book myself. And uh, found this uh, very helpful. It's a book uh, probably geared mostly to, to women, but I found it very helpful uh, for me as well. It's just because everybody does chores in the home. Everybody does mundane activities at home at some point, or we all should. And uh, so that book really, really dignifies and speaks of God's perspective on things that are done in hidden and in secret that may not register in our culture as amazing life events, but that God takes great delight in the ordinary things that happen in the home. So I I recommend all three of these books, and uh, they'll be out there for the entire series. So here's the text for today, uh, Colossians 3.17, and it's up on the screen for you. Listen to God's word. And whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that right now you would give us grace to understand this verse. And we pray that you would give us grace to apply this verse, that whatever we are doing right now, which is listening to your word and considering it, that we might do it in the name of the Lord, that we might give you thanks for this moment, this moment in the week to start a new week, to hear your word. So we pray that you would speak to us, and I pray that you would do the miraculous today. Lord, I actually asked for something quite extraordinary, that you would open our minds to understand 
our eyes to see and our hearts to anticipate your glorious work through the ordinary means of our lives. Lord, would you become greater in our sight today? Give us a glimpse of your lordship, Jesus, we pray. And uh, pray that you would give us grace to be hearers and doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my fondest memories of being a third and fourth grader uh, elementary student was recess. And I can remember when I was about third or fourth grade that every day at recess, we would go outside and we would play football. We'd play football on this huge uh, lawn and uh, we would try to squeeze every second out of recess. So we would rush out there, we would quickly pick teams, each team would quickly select a quarterback and then we would play like we were in the NFL. And we really did play. It's not like today. We played tackle, and the teachers allowed that uh, back in the day where everybody didn't have to be uh, protected. And so it's probably foolish, but that's what we did. And it's funny about those days. I remember the enthusiasm, the excitement, uh, but I can't remember a single play. I have this vague memory of me diving in the end zone and catching a touchdown pass in third grade, but that might be false memory syndrome. I'm not sure. But I, have this va- I honestly have this vague men- memory of diving and saving the day. But what I do remember is how huge the field was that we played on at recess. I mean, it had to be at least regulation. It had to at least be 100 yards or maybe longer because it took so many plays for us to execute to make a successful scoring drive. So I remember the expansiveness of the field we played on. Well, I never thought much about it and grew up and moved away. And then one time in my 30s, I was back visiting my parents and we drove by the old school and I saw the field and it was a shock. The field had shrunk. (laughs) The field had shrunk. It wasn't nearly as big as I remember. Now you laugh because actually, of course, the field had not shrunk. I had grown up. And my perspective had changed. And it really wasn't more than 100 yards because I thought I could probably now throw um, the better part of the length of the field as an adult. I had grown up in something that had seemed so large and expansive to a little boy seemed much smaller and limited to a grown man who had a very different definition of what a huge field really is. And the truth is that the gospel and its effects have worked in my life in a a very similar way. It was those same years that I was first coming to understand the gospel. And in fact, a few years later that I actually became a believer in Jesus Christ. And I don't know if it was the church that I grew up in, probably not. It was probably just my limited understanding. But to me in those days, the gospel was the good news that Jesus died for my sins. And that is absolutely true. And the good news that when I died, I would go to heaven, which is absolutely true and absolutely glorious news. And that was huge and expansive to me. To know that I could know Jesus and that when I died, I would be with him forever in heaven or more accurately in a new heavens and a new earth. Beyond that, I'm not sure I understood very much. I knew I was supposed to read my Bible. I knew I was supposed to pray. I knew I was supposed to generally be good. I knew I was supposed to tell other people about Jesus. So thankful for growing up in a church where even Elementary kids were encouraged to evangelize. And and the reason I was to tell them about Jesus was so that when they died, they would go to heaven as well. And the whole thing just seemed so huge to me. But as as an adult, I look back and I, I see that the good news I believed is absolutely true and is absolutely glorious. But you know what? It's a little bit, it's smaller than I realized at the time. The gospel to me as a kid growing up was mostly something to believe that prepared me for the future. And yet it had very little to do with daily life in the here and now. But as I've grown 
and matured and am maturing and am growing, I'm coming to realize that the gospel and particularly the effects of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel, is for something like eternal life, absolutely. What's better news than that? But it's also for here and now. And as I mature, I see that the gospel is actually truth that is to seep in to all of my life. The so-called spiritual moments like now at church or reading my Bible during the week or telling someone about Jesus, yes, the gospel is for these moments. That's what I got as a kid, those moments and heaven. But the gospel is for something much more than that. It's for the mundane and for the ordinary parts of our life. And that is good news because the majority of our lives are ordinary, the ordinary parts of our lives. And if the gospel doesn't touch those, if the gospel only saves me in the end, if the gospel is only for when I am in a specifically spiritual activity in quotations like this moment right now, then the gospel is perhaps much smaller in its effects than the gospel that we find in the Bible. Part of maturing in our faith is coming to see that the message of the gospel affects everything. And so discipleship is not merely the spiritual aspects of our life, for all of life is spiritual, and discipleship is following Jesus in all of life. It's learning it's following, it's, it's, it's submitting to, it's communing with Jesus in all of life. And I wonder if you're like me, because I still struggle with that same ideology. And I wonder if you're like me, and while it feels really big, perhaps there's more to the story than you grasp and I grasp on a daily basis. Alfred Hitchcock said that movies are just life with the dull bits cut out. <laughs> Movies are just life with the dull bits cast, uh, cut out. Think about that. Nobody wants to see a movie of somebody in traffic, except the opening scene of La La Land, which is awesome. <laughs> That's a great scene of people in traffic. But besides that, nobody wants to see people in traffic. A movie is life with the dull bits cut out. And in response to that, author Tish Warren writes, we tend to want a Christian life with the dull bits cut out. Yet God made us spend our days in rest and work and play and taking care of our bodies and our families and our neighborhoods and our homes. What if all these boring parts matter to God? What if days passed in ways that feel small and insignificant to us are weighty with meaning? And part of the abundant life God has for us. That's the burden of this series. That when Jesus said, I came to bring you life and bring it abundantly, I think historically I would have understood that to mean mountaintop experiences, abundances when things are going great, abundances when things are exciting, when I feel his presence, when I, when I sense something powerful of an encounter with God. Those are the abundant moments of life. But what if the abundant life is really about all of life? That all of life lived intentionally for the glory of God, that bringing purpose and meaning to even the mundane. What if that is the abundance that God has for us? Not a change of circumstances necessarily, but a redefinition and a reinterpretation of those circumstances so that what was previously meaningless is now pulsating with meaning and purpose. What if that is the abundant life? I think it is. And that's why in this sermon we're not going to talk about Sunday worship. And aside from an announcement about a video, we're not going to talk about community group. And we're not going to talk about reading your Bible and praying. And we're not going to talk about traditional, at least traditional, evangelism. I think we are going to talk about evangelism, but it's not going to be traditional evangelism. We're going to talk about sleeping. We're going to talk about eating. We're going to talk about work and chores and recreation. We're going to talk about going to the gym 
and engaging on social media. We're going to talk about traffic jams and homework, and we're going to talk about your home and your neighborhood and your workplace. We're going to talk about your citizenship. We're going to talk about your shopping and your entertainment and the thousand moments that occur each day which are filled with significance if we'll take notice to what their purpose is. So back to our verse, Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What a vast statement. Is there anything more vast than whatever you do? Do everything? Paul could hardly have said anything more expansive in his description of submission to the lordship of Jesus. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. Uh, that's why it's called the letter to the Colossians. Interestingly, we're planning to teach through this book next spring, so we'll, we'll get into Colossians next year, Lord willing. But he's been introducing them in this letter to the preeminence of Christ. And so in chapter 1, he says these kinds of things. These are quotes. He says, by him all things are created. Whoa, Jesus is the creator. He says, he is the head of the church. He writes in chapter 1, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, that he might be preeminent. He says that in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so he starts the letter saying, Jesus is bigger than you knew. That he's the one that all creation came through him. That he rules over his people, the church. That actually all the fullness of God dwelled in this, in this man, Jesus Christ. Mind-blowing theology. Who can explain that in its totality? That all the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. So he starts with this lofty theology. That's where he begins his letter. And now he gives the most practical, all-encompassing instruction for daily life based on the truth that Jesus is the ruler above all, that he is the creator, that he is the head of the church. Therefore, live all your life for the one who is over all of life. Whatever you do, whatever you do, that means, well, everything. In word or deed. Now, he's not looking for someone to sneak in there and go, well, okay, this part of my life, it's, I'm not speaking and I'm not doing. What about, no, he's, no, there's no, there's no exception. There's no fine print. When he says, whatever you say or do, he means everything. It's a way of giving it all to us. Whatever you do. In chapter 2, we find out that not only is Jesus the preeminent sovereign, but he's also our personal Lord. This verse, chapter 317 uh, it actually is the conclusion of a section that started back in chapter 2, verse 6. There he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So he starts with this huge theology, and then he moves, This Lord you've received. This is your Lord, and now live your life walking in him, the one who rules over all. Jesus is the promised one that we receive, who restores life, who grants eternal life to us. And eternal life doesn't start then. Eternal life starts the moment that you are converted. Eternal life is to know him, Jesus says. The, the Bible story goes very, very briefly like this, that God created a perfect world that he created by his word all of creation and said that it was good. And he created Adam and Eve. They were without sin. He placed them in a garden where they tended and plant, where they planted and tended and cared for this garden. We'll look at that in a few weeks when we talk about our work. And he gave them work to do. Uh, he, they had perfect fellowship with him. They had perfect fellowship with one another. And all of their days were filled with productive, fruitful, joyful, sin-free living. Every moment was filled with meaning. They didn't know the ache of meaningless that comes from sin in a fallen world. Now, then in chapter 3, they rebel against God. They sin and everything changes. Work was given before the curse. Work is not a part of the curse. But as a part of the curse, work becomes difficult. And so now work is challenging and troubling and relationships. The curse brought 
challenge between the husband and wife. And so our relationships struggle because of sin after chapter 3. Relationships are skewed. Work is difficult. All of life comes to us with trouble. There is no long-lasting trouble-free zone in life. We have trouble in all aspects of our lives. Our physical bodies are deteriorating over time as we move towards death, which is the great enemy and a result of the fall. And what happens is, separated from God in sin, much of our life loses its significance because we don't see the Lord. We don't understand him. We're born in darkness as his enemy, not his friend, apart from him. And when we live apart from God, we will start to create our own meaning and our own significance and our own purpose. And so we create for ourselves idols that we live for, not statues. Probably no one in the room has statues that they're living for. You may, but, but typically the kind of idols I'm thinking of are the idols of money and power and lust and greed, these kinds of things. And so we, we define for ourselves new purposes and new goals and new meaning in our lives, and we chase after those things, and we find ourselves restless and empty. But once we are reconciled to God through Christ, we receive eternal life, and everything changes. We are united to Jesus His spirit comes to live within us, and we are then given a redefined life. There's still sin. We're still getting older and dying. There's still troubles. There's still difficulties, but now we are restored to our original purpose. Now we are restored to the God who who gave his life for us in Jesus Christ. Now we come into a new kingdom and follow the king that we were originally created in the garden to follow. And now all of our life can matter. All of our life can matter. That's the point of verse 17 is that all of life counts. So live all of your life for the glory of God. And we can only do that once we know Jesus and begin to live for him, to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do. Sam Storms calls that, this verse, he calls that phrase, whatever you do, comprehensive Christianity. Comprehensive Christianity. The problem is that I and many of us tend to have a compartmentalized Christianity. Not a comprehensive, but a compartmentalized where there are certain aspects of life that are spiritual and certain that aren't. Certain that really matter and certain that don't. Certain that God's really paying attention to and cares about and other areas that he, why would God have an opinion about that? That doesn't matter. We tend to compartmentalize, but this verse is comprehensive This verse tells us there is no sacred part of our life and a secular part of our life. There is no spiritual part of our life and ordinary part of our life. But all of life is to be lived for God. And the phrase that that here that, that really indicates that all of our Christianity is to be comprehensive is not just the phrase, whatever you do, in in word or deed, and do everything, but it's the phrase in the name of the Lord. Jesus. That's what's really key here. The Lord Jesus. Lord means ruler or sovereign or master or king. It means any of those. And when we are converted, we are converted to become a member of a new kingdom. Look at verse 13 in chapter 1. This is what he's already told them. All of this Lord language didn't just appear out of nowhere. He's been talking about that. We saw how Christ is preeminent. Look at 113. He said, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We were in the domain of darkness. Now we're in the domain of Christ as Lord. And that makes all the difference. When we are converted, Our sins are forgiven. We are declared righteous. We are made a new person. We do receive eternal life. All of this happens, but something else happens. We are transferred from a life of darkness uh, without purpose. We are transferred into the kingdom of his son. So now we have a new king, a new Lord. So we can do everything under the lordship and rulership of Christ. He owns it all. And all of life is now to be lived in this new kingdom and for this new king. When you become a Christian, you don't just adopt some new values. You don't just adopt some new beliefs. 
You, you, don't, you don't just change a few lifestyle issues. You move from death to life, and you move into a different kingdom where there's a different ruler over your life. It's not the world, the flesh, and the devil that rule over you anymore. You have been rescued from that and transferred into a kingdom that's ruled by Jesus, the one who says over all of the universe, mine, including us. He is our new king. And we live in his name. Storms goes on to say, in the name of the Lord Jesus means, could mean a couple of things. It could mean for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, do it for the sake of Jesus. He says it could mean an open and explicit acknowledgement that he alone is Lord and sovereign over all. Whatever you do, do it openly, acknowledging clearly that he is ruler over all of your life. He says it could mean to the glory of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. It says it could mean in humble admission that he is the source of all things. I'm going to talk about that in the conclusion here in a minute. But it's living life in humble submission, recognizing him as my source. Recognizing him as my source as I go about my work, as I go about engaging with my family, as I go about recreation, as I go about shopping, as I go about doing household chores, as you go about making a sales call, as you go about volunteering at the PTA or on the soccer team or in your community in some way. In all of those ways, humbly acknowledge that he's the source of all of this. That's the vision that he has. Way more expansive than this doesn't really matter that much today, but one day I get to go to heaven. One day we do get to go to heaven. I'm not minimizing that at all. We need a far greater vision of the glory of heaven. And when we have that, we'll see how that is to invade today and bring purpose and manner today. It's not one against the other. It's both and. Because of Jesus and all that he's accomplished, that we now are privileged to live with him, in him, and for him. The lordship of Christ is really the theological basis for saying all of life matters. We say all of life matters because he rules over all of life. A new kingdom under a new king means that everything we do matters for his glory. I love what Paul does. He not only tells them this, but then he gives a very practical application of how this works out. A few verses later, he tells us, gives us an example that I think properly understood should serve all of us when we think about the mundane, the ordinary, the regular, everyday sense of our lives. He gives us an application here that's very helpful. In the, in the next verses, he talks to wives and husbands and parents and children about how, they can, how they're called to live out their faith. So he's talking to the household. And then after them, he, he addresses bondservants. We see this in verse 22. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now, I don't have time to develop a full sort of explanation historically of what was going on in, in the Roman Empire in Paul's day. But these, he's referring to slaves. The ESV doesn't translate it slaves. It's the word for slaves. That's what your footnote will tell you. It's the word slave. But they're calling it bondservant because slavery wasn't exactly like what we know of, the shame of our country, which was uh, enslaving people based on their color or race. It wasn't that kind of a thing. It was actually a means where at times people could sell themselves and be bound for a period of time to pay off a debt and then be free. So bondservant is you're bound to someone for a period of time. So it, 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 I would still say it's an evil institution largely, but nothing like what happened, uh, you know, in our own uh, country and in other parts of the world. So to save slavery, we instantly think some different things. But what is similar about the two is that the person who is a bondservant, and I'm going to use the word slave because that's what he is, he or she has lost their freedom. They have lost their freedom, and they are serving a master. They're not an employee paid a wage freely like they can come and go as they want. They are They've given up their freedom. And though some bondservants could have significant responsibilities in the household, the majority of bondservants did work that was lower than what any of us in the room do. The, bond, the typical bondservant, some would have been higher, but the typical bondservant lived a life 
that on their best day would be worse than your worst day in terms of the mundane nature of your life. They did the grunt work. They did what no one else wanted to do. Their tasks were lowly. Their tasks were menial. Their tasks were repetitive. No one is chasing their dreams. No one is doing what they were wired for. No one's fulfilling the calling of the person God made them to express their creativity and be a world changer. Okay, nobody's doing any of that. They're doing the menial, grunt, dirty work in a world without sanitation like we have, okay, without air conditioning. We're not thinking about someone who's just kind of cleaning the house like today. They are doing dirty work that no one else wants to do. Menial, repetitive, no freedom, doing what they're told day in, day out. As purposeless of an existence. There's no one who would have to battle. What's my purpose? I have no purpose. More, they wouldn't even think in those terms. Much of that's common. Live your dreams. Uh, nobody did that. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a modern luxury, okay, to be able to go and do what you want to do. They, most of history, people have not had that freedom. So what I'm trying to say is However you feel purposeless, uh, lacking purpose and meaning, and doing the drudgery of this same expense report, or doing the same dishes, or driving the same route, or whatever it is, the same bedtime routine with kids, whatever it is that you find to be repetitious, their whole life is worse than that. Okay, that's the point I'm trying to make. Because they have no options, and it never changes. Here's how Paul dignifies that life. Verse 22, bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, that means not when they're looking at you, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now the same language, look, whatever you do, oh, we just read that, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Cleaning the latrine, preparing the food, sweating and working from, from sun up to sundown and into the evening with little rest, taking care of other people without gratitude and without appreciation. Slaves, you are serving the Lord Christ. He totally fills drudgery with meaning and purpose. There's an inheritance. This is for the Lord. You can honor Christ even without freedom. You can still honor Christ. They may take your freedom, but they cannot take your ability to worship and honor the Lord with a life of meeting for the glory of God even in difficult circumstances. Oh, and by the way, verse 25, the wrongdoer will be paid back. Slave owner, he'll get it. He's got his coming. For the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And if you're a Christian and you're in this, and again, it was different, it was different than what happened in our country. Could, there could have been aspects of it that looked for some of the bond servants a little bit more like employer-employee, but ultimately they had lost their freedom. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So he does not endorse this cultural practice, but he says in the midst of this cultural practice, those who are on the lower menial job end can glorify the Lord, and those who are in the higher end, you better watch out, because judgment's coming, is what he says. So how does that apply to us in our daily lives? Well, whatever you do, the ordinary tasks take on a new meaning when we do them with Christ in view. Listen, if God cares about the mundane work of an unknown Christian slave in the town of Colossae in the first century, living out his or her days in obscurity, not only, if he cares about that, not only because work has an inherent value, but because this is being offered as worship and service to Christ the King. If God cares about that, giving those days meaning, then how much more does God have meaning and value in our work and our play and our eating and our reading and our sleeping and whatever we do before the Lord? 
The God of the mundane has redeemed you so that your life, whatever you do in word or deed, may count for him. Not just the spiritual activities or the extraordinary events or the lives that matter. Our lives matter, the in-between events. You know, I've heard it said, and there's some truth to this, like a few events in your life really determine the nature of your life and who you are. You know, meeting the person you're going to marry, getting the first job that led to whatever, moving to this location, the happenstance meeting with that person that led to this and changed everything. And so there's this idea that it's the big moments in life, there's really a handful at most that determine everything about you. But author Annie Dillard said, the way we spend our days is the way we spend our lives. I think our lives and the value are determined not by five moments that we could pinpoint on a calendar, but all the moments in between those. And did we live those intentionally? And did those matter? And were those offered in worship? And were those intentionally matters that we considered and thought about and sought to live for our Lord Christ? Sometimes it's easy at those big moments to live for the Lord. Sometimes it's easy when you meet the person you want to marry and they're a Christian and you're a Christian. You come and you have a great wedding day. And obviously my wife, uh, my marriage to my wife and our wedding day, huge impact that day on our lives. But, but it really wasn't that moment. It's been the thousand moments between our wedding day and today that have really made the difference in our lives. It's not just spiritual activities or extraordinary events. God cares about it all. You know what? We can be tempted to wonder, is that really true? Does God really care about it all? I think the text says so. There's other texts as well. 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus or do all for the glory of God. I misquoted that. Romans 12 talks about, hey, we are to live all of our lives as a living sacrifice. That means that all of life is lived as worship to him. This, this theme is throughout the scripture. Does God really care? Is there a God for the mundane moments of the life? Author Matt Redman, not the singer, but the author Matt Redman wrote the following. He said, is there a God of the mundane? He says, yes. There is a God for those who are not changing anything but diapers. There is a God for those who simply love their spouse and pour out unappreciated affection on their children day after day. There is a God for the, man who sp for the mom who spends her days scraping the trampled mac and cheese off the kitchen floor. There is a God for the man who hammers out a day's work in obscurity for his wife and kids. There is a God for the just and kind employers. There's a God for generous homemakers, generous with prayers and dollars and time. There is a God for day laborers looking at a mission trip to the far corners of the world like an unimaginable vacation. There is a God for the middle class people staving off cancer, struggling to raise teenagers, and simply hoping against hope that they keep their jobs. There is a God for the broken home with a full bank account but an empty bed. There is a God for those children tending the health of their aged parents. There is a God delighting in the ordinary existence of the unknown faithful doing unknown work. There is a God of grace for those who live out their faith everywhere but do not want to move anywhere. And yes, there is a God of the mundane parts of life, the small moments. There's a God of kind smiles, good tips, and good mornings. There's a God of goodbye hugs and parting kisses, a God of firm handshakes, a God of grasping frail fingers in hospital rooms. There's a God of all the forgettable moments between the sensational never remembered. These are not spiritually vacuous moments for which there is no God. There is a God for those with mundane lives. This is an encouraging answer. Encouraging because most of us live very mundane lives. 
encouraging because so much of our life is full of the mundane. It's true. So much of our life is not in the worship service with the band playing and the word opened and our Christian friends huddled together, giving us high fives out in the lobby. Most of life is lived in very different contexts. And so if we don't have a gospel that matters there, then we don't have a robust biblical gospel. Two points of application and we're done. Usually we think of application as something I can write down and do. Here's the first application. Believe what I'm telling you this morning because it's the Bible. Believe this truth that all of life matters and whatever we do can be done to the lordship of Christ and that even the bondservant can work heartily for he or she is serving Christ. We're going to drill down in specifics. This message has been an overview. We're going to drill down into specifics in the coming weeks on different areas of life. But before we do, I, I appeal to you to buy into the biblical concept that your spiritual life not be truncated and separated from the rest of your life, but that you view all of life as unto the Lord. Some of us need a radical reorientation of how we view our daily lives. We need a retooling. We need a new set of glasses with different lenses that see all of life as for him. And I pray that in the next eight weeks, this series would contribute to that, that maybe some of us will have a reorientation of our lives. We need to ask God to show us where our faith is compartmentalized, how we view spiritual life, it's church or personal devotions or community group. Do we view it that as spiritual life or do we see all of our life as potential worship before the Lord and honoring him? We need God to show us where our discipleship is limited to a few areas so that we may embrace the Bible's comprehensive Christianity so that discipleship becomes following Jesus by his grace, empowered by him in all of life. He died on a cross to forgive our sins, to give us new life, to bring us into a kingdom under his lordship so that all of life matters. That's part of the redemptive reality. We must repent. Some of us need to repent from believing falsehood. I'm not saying repent as if you have willfully read the scripture, understood what it meant, and defied it. I'm not saying that. I'm saying repent in the sense of turning. I mean, it could be that, but for most of us, it's going to be repent in the sense of turning. Turning from false lies, turning from false beliefs, turning from a worldly mindset, a worldly mindset which says there are some spiritual and some secular activities that some of the life matters and some does not. One author said this. I found this compelling. We think the small, mundane, ordinary things we do each and every day are worth nothing before God because they are worth nothing before the gods of this world. We think the little things we do every day are worth nothing before God because they are worth nothing before the gods of the world of this world. And when I read that, I thought, that is loaded with truth. The gods of this world, money, power, popularity, self-fulfillment, success, pleasure, status, they give significance to the activities that will bow before them. The gods of this world give meaning and purpose and significance to the activities that will bow before them. Here's how that works. Work and a job is valuable if it pays well. If you make a lot of money, it matters. If not, it doesn't matter. That is a completely unbiblical idea. But that's the gods of this world. Work is valuable if you have power over other people. That's not a biblical value. Work uh, Activities matter if other people respect them. That's bowing to the god of popularity or the fear of man. Activities matter when you feel self-fulfilled. Nobody feels self-fulfilled vacuuming the carpet, but it's got to get done. Maybe somebody does, but most people don't. 
But the, but the God of this world says it's all about your fulfillment. And if you're not being fulfilled, then find something else to do. The God of the Bible says all of life is lived before the Lord Jesus Christ. So even vacuuming can be an opportunity to thank God. You are pushing back the fall. You are bringing order to chaos as you suck up dust bunnies and animal hair and Legos and whatever else that come up while you vacuum. You are stewarding the, the, the apartment or the home that God has provided you. You are thanking God while you do it for what he has provided. No, that, that moment can be filled with meaning. But the gods of this world will never say that. The gods of this world will only bless what bows before them, and thus the gods of this world will never bless the mundane. Because the mundane, and in the mundane, there is not power and wealth and pleasure and fulfillment of lust and all of these kinds of things. So first of all, believe this is true and ask God to convince you that this is true. And then here is the second application, because I didn't read the last part of the verse. The other part of the application is cultivate gratitude. Look at verse 17 again. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do everything for his glory and give him thanks. The gospel, that is that Jesus died and rose for our sins to grant us eternal life, to make us new people, to make us citizens of his kingdom, united to him under his lordship. The gospel is meant to create gratitude. And here's what I find, that gratitude is so key in helping us see God in all of life. Here's an application that can change your perspective quickly. To begin to thank God throughout the day for what he's provided. Perhaps you have one ritual that you do this with in your life. And I want to argue that if you embrace this ritual, that you take this ritual, this liturgy, and you spread it throughout your day in your life. And it's the ritual of praying before a meal. Many of us pray before a meal. Most of us have no idea why we do that. We just, well, that's what you're supposed to do, especially if I'm with a Christian. Oh, yeah, well, who's praying? You know, I, one of us is, I better. I don't normally, but we're Christians, and he's, he's in my community group, so I better offer. Um, so why do we even do it? A lot of us are bold. We'll pray in a restaurant. I mean, we'll just pray. We'll just pray for, thank God for our food. Well, the reason we do that is to, it's this verse. It's to acknowledge that you provided this, and you provided taste buds that enjoy this. And this gives our body strength to stave off starvation and illness. And this is fueling me and it's an enjoyable experience. And if I'm doing it with someone else, there's community around the, the meal. This is a gift from you and so I'm gonna thank you. Okay, what if, what if we punctuated our days with those moments? I'm not talking about some hyper-legalistic, wait a minute, have you said thanks in the last five minutes? Not, but I'm just thinking, take that, take that ritual and apply that throughout your day. Waking up, what, how would your day look different if you woke up and the first thing you thought, or maybe that might be expecting a lot, but the second or third or fourth thing you thought was, Lord, thank you for a night's sleep and a bed to sleep in. Lord, thank you that while I slept, you ruled the universe, including my life. Thank you that it didn't all fall asleep when I didn't pay attention to it. Thank you that my kid's heart beat all night long and didn't stop, not because I kept it beating, because you did. Lord, thank you for a good night's sleep, and I give you this day. May the rest I experience strengthen me today. What if when you saw your kids in the morning, you, if, you, if you have kids, you thanked God for them? Lord, thank you. Not again? we got to do this again? What do you mean? How many times do I have to make you breakfast? You're two. I've been doing this for two years, you know. <laughs> Lord, thank you for my children. Thank you for the gift that I have. They're not going to, listen, as one who's uh, an empty nester, essentially, got one is like leaning just about out. My last one is just about out of the nest. So as one, I'm going to tell you, it all happens quickly, and I wish there was more moments where I gave thanks and enjoyed the moment. What if on my drive, I did have a moment? I'm not saying you've got to pray for 45-minute commute, but what if I had a moment on the drive where I'm saying, Lord, as I go into work, I want to thank you that I have a job. 
Thank you that you've given me the ability. There's people in the room that don't have a job that would trade places with you and sit in traffic to earn a paycheck, I assure you. But, but Lord, thank you for the place I am going. Thank you that I have a place to work. What if after a meeting or in between the three meetings you have back to back, even briefly you said, Lord, thank you for the people I work with. I give you thanks that you've placed me here sovereignly as your child to serve you, to love them, to worship you with my life, to work for your glory, but also to love them and serve them and be a blessing to them. As Luther said, God doesn't need your good works. You're saved by grace. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. So, Lord, thank you that I'm here to be loving to them. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for that. What if when you get home and you go for a walk, Lord, thank you for, uh, my tendency, it is hot as like an internal place of damnation. (laughs) But, but Lord, thank you that we, I mean, thank you that I have a place, thank you that I have a place to walk. And, Lord, that I, where you place me in this location, this neighborhood, this apartment complex, wherever you are. Thank you that you've placed me here, that there's people all around, Lord, that I'm not isolated and alone, that I'm, I'm healthy enough to take a walk. Lord, thank you for this. What if we punctuated our days that way and gave thanks, not just at mealtime, but whatever. Do you think all of life would appear differently if we did the last part of the verse, give thanks to God, the Father through him. What if you gave thanks when you wake up and, as I said, when you drive and do chores, when you arrive at work, in between your appointments, when you run errands, when you exercise, when you clean up, when you go for a walk, when you read a book, when you make love, when you watch TV, when you cut the grass, when you put the kids to bed, when you go shopping, when you interact on social media, you get the point. What if? Here's what happens. The perspective that everything matters to God fuels gratitude. And then it's a cycle. Gratitude fuels an awareness that everything matters to God. An awareness that everything matters to God fuels gratitude. Gratitude, in turn, helps us see that everything matters to God. And it's a a life-giving cycle that is way too foreign in my life. Way too foreign. Because I'm telling you the field was really big, and now I look back and say, boy, that field was really small, but I live a very small life, oftentimes. I'm preaching a sermon here to me, because oftentimes I think about the Lord in my devotions, and sometimes, and I'm a pastor, where I could be, I'm interacting at some level with the things of God during the day in my job, hopefully, hopefully, Uh and I still get lost and forget and wander. We are part of something much greater than we know. And my prayer is that God will convince you that this is true and that you will thank God for it. And the effects of the gospel in our lives and in our church will expand exponentially in the next eight weeks. Not just because of the sermons. The sermon was, I don't know, 50, 45 minutes? I don't know how long it was. That's a very, I know it felt long. That's a very small piece of a week. It may feel long compared to a 20-minute sermon, but it ain't long compared to a week. And so now we're about to go dismiss and now live this verse. Now we're going to go live this. We're not living, I mean, we're living this verse right now, but really this is easy. Now we get to live this verse, and as we walk out the door, whatever we do, give, uh, do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.